Hey everyone, it's Carl. In today's conversation, Rachel chats with Albert about being the black sheep of the family who struggled with poor grades and mental health challenges as a Taiwanese American kid in the Silicon Valley. We hope you enjoy this refreshing and inspiring conversation. Here's Albert. Hey, Albert. Hi. Hey, welcome to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here today. So today we're going to be talking about concepts like meritocracy and privilege, especially from the point of view of an educator, which is your profession, and what that's like as an Asian American in today's society. So maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I would love to. So I'm actually a Taiwanese immigrant, immigrated to the States at a relatively young age. And since then, I've been raised in the Bay Area. I would say the city that I've been raised in is majority East Asian, specifically. And so within Mm -hmm. that environment, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on academics, a lot of emphasis on, I would say, success. Success in a very American dream way, where a lot of your deliverables are held accountable. So I think I think, I think my story is very interesting because I am kind of a counter narrative to everything that my fellow peers were into or are in. It was actually a really big struggle in elementary school, middle school, because there were a lot of things going on in my life that actually led to me feeling like I was a failure because my grades were terrible and I didn't know why. Our teachers were confused, my parents were confused, and so the district actually gave me a sanctioned IQ test. And to their surprise, I tested very highly. They were like, well, this is not a clear reflection of what we see from Albert. Like, this is just not what we see. I almost had to repeat fifth grade, and in sixth grade, I was diagnosed with ADD, um, or Attention Deficit Disorder because it came to light that it was hard for me to focus on things. Mm. I also struggle with OCD, and that's something that I had in elementary school where I would consistently try to do everything in even pairs. And I Mm. think that came out of anxiety or it came out of academic pressure. And I actually didn't tell my parents. Like my parents oh, like were just unaware wow. of this. Yeah. And I think what was even harder is that my brother, my younger brother, was extremely proficient academically. I think I felt inferior to my younger brother at many times of my life, especially in elementary school, middle school, because I didn't reflect what I would say Asian culture deems to be like the older brother figure because mm-hmm. I didn't have good grades. I'm struggling with all these mental health things. And that led to me, myself, having a very low sense of self-esteem. I knew my IQ test score. I knew that I'm supposed to be quote unquote this smart. And yet my grades don't reflect that yet. I'm struggling with so many things and I don't know what's going on with my life. And so that was just my elementary school, middle school experience. Transitioning from there, middle school to high school, I had a terrible cumulative GPA. I got a, I had a cumulative GPA of around 2.5. And my SAT score is around a 1,700 out of 2,400. And this is obviously prior to the 1600 spectrum that people use now for SAT scores. But in in terms of the grand scheme of things, this was a very low score, especially in an academically rigorous schooling environment like the school that I was in. This all led to obviously very low self-esteem, lots of bullying that happened in middle school and high school. And also I was actually overweight throughout like my entire high school life. And so all of these are like counter narratives to the typical Asian American upbringing, right? I had terrible grades, very low self-esteem, and I was also overweight and I struggled with a body image a lot. And I, I listened to a prior podcast this earlier mm. and basically everything that that person said 
related to me. Mm. <laughs> like when I was listening to it, I was like, yes, this, yes, this, yes, this, this all happened. Check, check, check. Like check, check, check. Yeah, exactly. And so like that oh. was a layer on top of everything I already experienced. Like you can imagine, right? My self-esteem was at like a really rock bottom status in high school. And so it, it was really hard. I got into a school that I would say I'm proud of now, but I felt ashamed of in high school because all of my other peers got into quote unquote like higher ranking colleges and universities. I was overweight, I had terrible grades, and I felt like I had nothing to account for, nothing to prove to represent this first generation immigrant family that is expected to succeed and mm. to do well. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's especially no, important to tell this counter narrative because yeah. it is definitely one kind of struggle to feel like there are these suffocating expectations and yeah. all this pressure. It's another thing to feel like you aren't able to live up to it. And mm, especially yeah. for you having your brother as a kind of foil <laughs> to everything that you felt like you weren't able to achieve must have been really yeah. aggravating, I can imagine. I do want to go back to actually the mental health issues that course, you came you struggled with while in middle school so mm -hmm. with the ADD how did you get diagnosed what was that experience and process like um it like it came up to my parents that like I was having trouble focusing in class and so they actually sent me to like a specialist okay uh, and I don't remember much about it I basically went to a hospital and they like did a bunch of tests <laughs> and they basically at the end of it they were like our diagnosis is that your child potentially has ADD um, mm. and has difficulty focusing and yeah. so like especially because ADD and like things like ADHD are a spectrum right and so totally. I would say like I'm definitely on the more high functioning end of it mm. um, it's a lot harder to diagnose when it comes to that kind of stuff for my parents they were confused because they're like okay like does my child have it or not you know um and <laughs> And I like was on medication for it in middle school and that led to a variety of symptoms and things that I struggled with and eventually what happened was I was taken off medication and had to learn in many ways to cope with it throughout middle school and high school and I would say like even now today no one really knows that I had this diagnosis of ADD and I struggle with OCD because it's just like I've set up ways to be able to cope with it personally to the point where it it's not prevalent uh, when I'm speaking to people or when people are interacting with me mm. yeah yeah and so for people who aren't familiar with what ADD might mm -hmm. mean or how it's different yeah. from ADHD maybe you can speak yeah. to how that manifested for you behaviorally or mentally yeah um sure I actually I'm like not familiar with uh, a lot with ADHD okay. um, but I think my personal experience with ADD is that like it's just hard, like I get distracted very easily. Mm. Like when I'm in school, when I'm working, like it's easy for me to think of just a thousand different topics consistently and just not be able to focus on the task at hand. Yeah, and how did your parents who might not even have either the language piece or the context for mental health, how did this fit into their paradigm, this diagnosis? Oh, it was really hard for them. I think yeah. they, they, they had a really difficult time. And I remember having conversation with them like, earlier even this month asian americans and mental health is a very difficult like process because a lot of asians in general don't talk about mental health and it's something that is not really exposed to the public i think it reflects upon the concept of saving face and so mm. especially when i was diagnosed with this there's a lot of like denial from okay. the family or an extended family of like mm. like 
does does he really have it? But I think what I really appreciate about my parents is that they were willing to accept that I had this, you know, uh, rather than denying it or, okay. or or pretending that it wasn't there. Which I would say like is the experience with some Asian families, right? Yeah. And so I think that is something that I really appreciate that my parents were like, yeah, this is something that my kid might have, and I'm gonna do everything I can to support that, support my child through this. That was like. That was something that I really appreciate looking back as an adult now. Like, wow, like this is something that my parents did that is very like countercultural. Like, just from what I hear and just what I know about Asian culture is like this is not normal um, for an Asian family to do, and yet my parents were willing to do that. Mm. That is definitely remarkable, and it sounds like they went through this reckoning or struggle within themselves, yeah. but they did come out saying, "I'm going to learn. I'm going to do what it takes to support our child." Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I really appreciated that. Yeah. Mm. And what was it like for you to go through all this, if you can remember? Growing up, my family is very traditional. I grew up under a very pressure cooker childhood, in essence. So grades were really important. You got to work really hard to academically succeed. Like that's your job, you know. As as a child, as a student, that is your job. That's your responsibility. You need to do this. And so for me, as a kid, it was a struggle because I didn't want to do it, right? And I, mm. I, and I had this ADD like diagnosis where it was hard for me to focus. And so I think. It was a huge conflict in my in my personal life because I was very used to this traditional I would say Asian parenting style where it's very like disciplinary. I would say that traditional Asian parenting styles are not very, like necessarily grace filled. They're more like, why why didn't you get an A? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you didn't get an A, you need to work harder. You need to study harder to get an A. You know, like if you don't get an A, that's not good enough. And I think that's the mentality. Oftentimes. East Asian households just are raised under potentially like Asian American households in general. And because of this diagnosis, I think there's a shift, like a huge shift that I think my parents had to struggle with. And I noticed that shift where they're like, like, we, yeah, we can't expect our, our, our child to like just have A's all the time. Like that's not okay, you know, and learning kind of like the ethics of like encouraging me and allowing me to understand that I'm still innately like a valuable individual. And, and I remember my mom like coming to me once a long time ago and basically going like, Albert, to be honest, as your mother, it was really difficult. Like it was really hard because like, there's just so many things going on and we didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know what to do as your, as your mother. And I was like, dang, like that is Wow. That is something that like I I didn't know, right? Because yeah. I'm on the kids perspective, but to hear her say that like I think broke me in many ways because I was like, "Oh dang, this is a struggle they had, like this internal conflict of they grew up under a culture of deliverables and expectation and high high standards and a very like pressure cooker reality because that's just the reality they faced." And so I think through this process, some really good growing and learning moments for them was this understanding that, oh, like Albert has this and we need to like really support him through this. Wow. And that yeah. actually means like rewiring our parenting style and understanding how we can actually be better parents. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was really, really helpful and I appreciated that. Mm. Yeah. I've also heard you talk about this feeling of being the black sheep of the family and yeah. feelings yeah. of perhaps shame around mm-hmm. that. And along with that, you did talk about the OCD and the fact that you mm-hmm. hid it from your parents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To be completely honest, it was terrible. Yeah, um, I can only imagine. I hated it. Like, mm-hmm. I, 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 like, I struggle with OCD, like, to this day, yeah. right? And I don't think my parents know to this day because it's, like, very, like, coped. It, it happens when I get extremely stressed or extremely tired. And I have to actually consciously, you know, calm down, you know, like, do some mindful breathing or something and, and get off of that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um and it is a difficult process that I think I've found ways to manage and cope with it now 
but it was definitely a journey throughout. Like I think in elementary school, it was just so hard for me to be able to do that. I remember there's this one time I was at the airport. Like this is a like funny story looking back at it now, but I think it really like reflects the struggles that I had internally. I was at the airport with my parents and I was just like going down this elevator. I was like seven or eight at the time, going down this elevator just to see what it was like. It was like one of my first times in the airport where I was like actually consciously at an airport. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I want to go. Or actually, I think it was an escalator. And so I was going down this escalator and I went up and my mom was just like, what are you doing? You know, like, why are you doing this? Right. And I was like, I was just curious. But then because I only did it once, because I only went down the escalator yeah. and went back up once, I had to do it again. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. my, like in front of my mother, I did it again. <laughs> and my mom, obviously, she thought that was just like belligerence right like Mm. how dare you do that right like in front of me but for me it was like internally like it was like no i have to do it again it's even pairs everything has to be even i have to do it again and so that that shift was really really hard for me but like you know obviously through through time i've had to like kind of like in 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 some in a weird way like give therapy to myself you know like and have to like you know learn how to cope with this and i have i would say for the better part uh, now it's i would say it's a lot easier for me to cope but that's obviously not through not without a huge amount of struggle a huge amount of like internally battling with my mind um mm-hmm. and continually like reminding myself like hey you don't have to do this like <laughs> you don't you really don't and yeah like, that was really difficult and i think you talked about the black sheep black sheep of the family i i definitely resonate with that i feel like i was very ashamed of myself and for context also and i know that this this was also talked about in an earlier podcast i'm an enneagram type three and what that means mm-hmm. it, it basically in a personality like typing system is that i'm the achiever and and one of the things that type three struggle with is shame deep shame but mm-hmm. how i would say we cope with it is achieving things but for me because i couldn't achieve in basically every form that i felt like would be recognizable by people i coped by ignoring basically my feelings of shame and trying to figure out a way of coping with it through humor or through popularity or through some other avenue where I felt like I could be successful. Mm. And so that's what I did. Like, that's exactly what I did. I tried to be the class clown. I tried to do things that I felt like would give me achievement, would give me recognition because I felt like I was lacking in every aspect of my life, essentially. I I had this deep-rooted sense of shame, but I like consciously try to block it off throughout my entire high school life which is like not good not healthy i do not recommend that for any person but that is just how i felt and how i was processing uh, my emotions at the time i just didn't know how to process my emotions like i didn't know as a high schooler and middle schooler to take the time to actually grieve i take the time to actually like think about how i feel in light of these you know results and these deliverables that i see in my life yeah like that's something that i thoroughly thoroughly regret not doing and that I practice a lot now <laughs> that I'm an adult. But back then, like, I, I escaped it in essence. I blocked it off and I tried to cope with different strategies that are not successful. <laughs> but that's that's kind of how I coped essentially with my shame, my, my feeling of that I was the black sheep of the family. Mm. Yeah, so there was a lot going on for you in your own yeah. education yeah, and being bullied as well. Is, I'm sure that had a big impact on your day-to-day mood and yeah. your functioning. Yeah. And yet it sounds like now you've really transcended all of that and are able to articulate and interpret what happened and that you've yeah. come to some sort of peace with that. What? How did you get from 
there to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I was at the lowest, you know, like mm -hmm. it, throughout my K to 12 schooling. And it's funny because I'm a history teacher, which right. is not a profession that most East Asians go to. Um, I actually looked this up as a really? statistic. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, like, wow, this is, like, yeah, like, this is, you know, wow, this is such a surprise, right? No, it's actually mm -hmm. not. People know this. I counted and I calculated 0.36% of all public school teachers in the nation are Asian male secondary education teachers. And that's wow. where I am. So basically, to put that into perspective, of the 21 million Asian Americans in this country, <laughs> 13,680 of them are male teachers that serve this community, which is like not a lot mm -hmm. uh, if you think about the uh, broader scheme of things. And out of the 3.8 million full-time public school teachers, we have 13,680 male Asian secondary education teachers. And for, just to provide context, secondary education just means middle school and high school teacher. And so for me to be a male Asian teacher is very rare, especially a male Asian teacher that teaches history. That's even more rare, I would say, yeah. um, because that's not a career path that I would STEM, say a lot of yeah. East Asians go to. Yeah, it's not a STEM field. And so I'm very much like, you know, humanities, liberal arts. I'm terrible at math. <laughs> like I cannot do math for my life, but this is the career path that I chose. And I think that in itself alludes to kind of like, I would say like my life as in many ways a counter narrative to the Asian American experience. But I think I had to learn how to be, how to embrace that about myself yeah. because I was innately that, you know, like that was yeah. my passion. Teaching, teaching is my passion and teaching history is my passion. And so when I went to college, this is where things really shifted because I saw high school and I saw education as this doggy dog world where grades were kind of the status attainment, like this form of status attainment, you know, that if you got a good grade, if you went to a good college, like you were set for life. This like very, I would say like constructed false belief that like, if you do well in college, you're going to have a great life. You're going to get married and like, you're going to have like the most perfect life ever. And you don't have to worry about a thing, which is just not true. Right. And I know that there's a podcast on that as well. Yes, right. There's um, a whole, at least one other person who's experienced yes. alliance with yours. Right. Exactly. Uh, and so feel free to listen to that. You know, uh, I loved it. That was a great podcast. Uh, but I think like for me, I had to really relearn what it means to love schooling. In college, I had to learn learn the reality that I actually loved education. Like, I love learning. I just don't like schooling mm. and the school environment that I was in. And I think the irony is that, like, schooling, the thing that's supposed to perpetuate learning and education, has become in our society a place where it actually makes people not want to learn. <laughs> mm. um, it actually makes people, like, actually down on themselves. And that's kind of what I experienced, not to blame, like, my school, but just the culture of, of the school that I was in made this so that I felt like it was, like, grades were just, like, a means to an end, that I had to succeed, and that reflected my innate value. My success reflected my value. And I think when I went to college... I would also credit this to like my religion because I'm Christian, that I had talks and thoughts and prayers about how learning was different from what I actually thought it was. That is through like a myriad of factors, like amazing supportive classmates that showed me what learning was like in a, in a humanizing environment. I had amazing professors in the college that I went to that were just a reflection of like really humanizing education in the sense of like they valued me for who I am and not for the deliverables that I could achieve. They were always considerate of my needs beyond just my grades. My classmates were not the competitive classmates that like I experienced a majority of my life and rather we supported each other throughout college. And I think that was a huge mindset shift for me as an individual. Like, oh wow, there are people that actually support each other even though they're 
kind of competing against each other. Like what? Mm. That is profound. I've never seen that ever. But I think it's because of my unique positionality as someone in the education environment. I'm an education major, and so of course all of the professors are experienced teachers, experienced educators in the field that they know. I would say they're masters at teaching people, and all my classmates are also. People that want to be teachers, and we're very aware of education theory. We're very aware of how to interact with people and what a positive learning environment looks like. And so, I think being in that mindset really brought to light a reflection of what a classroom should look like—a、mm. reflection of what people should be seen as, or students should be seen as in a school in the world. I remember there's this one time where I was in a capstone class. All of us were applying to master's programs throughout the region, and a lot of us would apply to the same ones. Typically, when people apply to the same colleges, especially in a environment that's academically rigorous, you don't talk to them because they're essentially considered your competition. Right. In, like in high school, I would say that's pretty popular amongst high academically achieving schools, where you're considered competition if you apply to the same school that I'm applying to. Because that makes sense, right?、Mm -hmm. But in in my undergraduate college environment, rather than compete, we support and help each other. Wow. Like, hey, I have this paper. Can you proofread this for me? And、yeah. people would be like, Yeah, of course, I'd love to. Even though they're applying to the same school.、Um, hey, I have this resume. What do you think about this? What are some ways we can better improve this resume? Like, and like we created a fostered environment where one person's success was everyone's success. Like, it didn't matter if I got into a master's program. If they got into that master's program, they deserve it. You know, and they fought for that, and I'm gonna celebrate that. And so I think coming into that environment, that society, really re rewired education for me. It rewired the purpose of education for me because of these amazing people. And through that, I really healed, or I was in this healing process、yeah. of seeing myself beyond the deliverables that I have, beyond the meritocratic. Society、mm -hmm. that I was raised under, or, or a meritocratic-minded society that I was、mm -hmm. raised under, to see, I would say, a more humanizing society, a more humanizing environment where I could really, really learn and love learning. And so now I've like come to really love learning, and that's a reflection of my grades as well. Like, I loved learning, and I and I love doing that. And so in college, I graduated with honors, and that is something that just. Would have never imagined if I was in middle school or in elementary school. If you were to ask me fifteen years ago, like, "Hey, what do you think your grades would be in college?" I'd probably not tell you. I would have straight A's.、Yeah. Like that's just not my reality back then. But I did because I learned to love learning, and I realized that that was important in my life. And because of that, that stemmed into the grades that I got because I just love to read. I love to read the textbooks. I'm a nerd.、Mm -hmm. I love to write essays because I love the material and I love the environment that I was in. That naturally led to good grades. That's incredible that you went from a very toxic for you environment to a really healthy one, and being treated in this holistic, human, nurturing way was able to lead to you being able to see yourself also in a more human way. Yeah, definitely. I really had to stem away from meritocracy, and,、yeah. and for like I think to provide context, like meritocracy is just kind of this belief that people are based on their achievements.、Mm. Like it's a system where you're based on your merit. Like hence the term meritocracy, and so you're defined or you're given a hierarchical rank based on your achievement. And so I would say like meritocratic environments are pretty rampant in East Asian American schooling systems and society, where if you have an A, you're seen as amazing. If you went to an Ivy League, you're seen as amazing. That's kind of like quote unquote like the merit that you、mm. have. But I would say that it's wrong to think about meritocracy without understanding privilege, right? Without、yeah. understanding the variety of factors that actually lead to someone's success. But for me, when I was in high school, I did not think about that. <laughs> you know, I thought about meritocracy by itself, and I just kept on getting mad at myself for saying, like, "Hey, Albert, why aren't you, you know, better? 
why aren't you doing better? Because you have a C's and D's in high school, you must be on the bottom of the totem pole in terms of your worth and your value. And that is kind of what's done from being in a meritocratic environment, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can't help but feel like it's a little ironic that I think if you asked an East Asian student in a high achieving high school setting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they might feel like it's the end of the world if they don't get into an Ivy League school, like they're done. Yeah. But yeah. for you, yeah. going to college was actually amazing <laughs> for you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, exactly. I, I find that very funny looking back now that the very college I was ashamed of in high school is one of the most formative and healing environments that oh, I've ever had, you so know, wholesome. in my entire life. Oh, it's yeah. very wholesome, right? It's very like, oh, wow, like I could not imagine that. But it did. And I really appreciate my college for what it has done for me now. And I wouldn't trade that for the world, to be honest, hmm. um, looking back. Yeah. So in, I know you were in a very heavily Asian populated high school environment. Mm-hmm. Was that the case in college, too? No, actually. So I I went to a college that was very diverse. I think this has also like allowed me to open my eyes to the bubble of privilege that I was in Mm. just to go to this college because my college was pretty split amongst the Asian slash Latinx slash black slash white communities. And Mm. also I would say socioeconomically, it was a very wide range as well. There were extremely rich people that went to my college, but also people that came on complete full ride scholarships. Yeah. And so for me to be surrounded in that environment really opened my eyes to exactly the kind of privilege that I had. I would hear the lived experiences of my fellow classmates and be like, holy crap, that is Mm. not what I experienced. And that is crazy, like absolutely crazy. And so I think for me to really be immersed in a community like that for four and a half years of my life really shifted my understanding of the world. Mm. It really shifted how I understood meritocracy because then they made me realize like, yeah, meritocracy is very flawed in many ways because you don't put privilege to account when you think about meritocracy. You don't put into the complexities of a human being when you when you have a mindset that purely focuses on meritocracy. And so that's something I really realized through my college experience. Yeah, that's something I struggle with, honestly, even mm-hmm. on this podcast, thinking that being Asian American and struggling with high expectations, the pressure to perform, having your home environment set up so that all you have to do is focus on your schoolwork. I think that's an absolutely valid struggle and that it can produce Mm -hmm. really dire mental health consequences. And at the same time, there's so much privilege in that because of the way the environment is set up. It's almost like the student or the child is super shielded. It's extremely hard for them to see that privilege. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that's something that I really studied. So like to provide context, I am getting a master's in teaching, but I'm focusing on Asian American students and specifically in high socioeconomic status communities uh, because that's where I was raised. A lot of my papers and a lot of my study focuses on that group. And one thing I've come to realize, and this is also like as I'm studying this, I'm looking back into my own life and looking back into what I've experienced, which is that we are, I am abundant in privilege. I have so much privilege growing up because of the bubble of similar socioeconomic statuses and similar cultural upbringings that a group of students might be in in a city like mine. You forget about your privilege. Absolutely forget about your privilege because you don't know that it exists because it's the norm. I think in my high school, it's the norm to get SAT prep support. Right. It's the norm to get a college admissions counselor. It's a norm to go to a four-year university without having to pay too much financial mm-hmm. aid, where that's the norm of the culture. It's the norm to not have to worry about working to make ends meet or supporting a family. There's no expectation to have to work and take care of family and learn at the same time, which mm-hmm. is an expectation for a lot of other families. Mm-hmm. And so the culmination of all this leads to a invisibility 
of privilege where people just are not aware. They just don't know because it's so normalized in their lived experiences. So I realized that that was true for myself as well. I think privilege is a constant journey to reevaluate and check your privilege is a consistent journey because it's so invisible. It's so hard to really realize and to push into your conscious mindset and reality. And I think that's very true in my upbringing as a student. And I would say in current students' upbringings, if they're in this bubble of the majority of people that are from their ethnic background that have similar socioeconomic statuses as them. Mm, Yeah. And what do you think, and this can be about yourself or your students Mm -hmm. or or anyone, Mm -hmm. but what do you think are the consequences of somebody specifically in high socioeconomic status East Asian American what do you think is the consequence of them not recognizing their privilege so I think that if you're not aware of your privilege it's easy to buy into the mentality of meritocracy Mm. like really easy actually to believe that your innate worth is based on your merit because there's nothing else there's no other good reason. Right. Like, oh, like, we don't put your privilege into perspective, then you actually then do think, yeah, all this is because of my effort. Where, in fact, I would actually argue and postulate that no one can really ever say that I earned something completely because you don't know the external factors behind your hard work. Like, yes, hard work is a factor to everything that you do and everything that you accomplish, but there's so many avenues and aspects of your life that help you be able to get an achievement. And I'd say mm-hmm. like college admissions is a very, very good example of that. People that get into college should be praised, you know, for their hard work and obviously their tenacity for getting to that school. But if they detach themselves from the privileges that they had that helped them get into that school, they lose empathy. They lose the understanding that they actually didn't completely earn this, that there are other factors involved when it comes to like anything in life. And so I think That lack of empathy leads to lack of understanding of just regular human beings Mm. and seeing people as deliverables rather than as just human beings in general. I think that's the big, big concern that I have when you're not aware of your privilege is that you don't see people as human beings anymore. You see them through their work, through their merit, through what they bring to the table. I would say that Mm -hmm. on the converse, then understanding privilege would lead to understanding human beings as like actual humans you know Mm. as people that have innate value without having to have done anything which is i think really important this is something that educators have to train their minds on doing on a day-to-day basis to see people as innately valuable without deliverables without the worth that people bring up because educators work with students and students have so much potential and students have so much that they can offer to the table. But if we see students through the lens of what they currently can offer at the moment, we're never going to see what they could be. We're never going to see their innate value and also what they can actually provide. Mm. I'm hearing you say that recognizing privilege goes hand in hand with unwedding the person from their accomplishments. There is a yes. lot more that goes into the outcome of a person's life and their happiness than their achievements and in some way this is kind of connected to the mental health piece too where it's being so strongly tied to the belief that I am my accomplishments creates so much Mm -hmm. pressure because you think it's all you if you don't Mm -hmm, perform mm -hmm. you're bad when in reality there are just so many other factors that go into it how would you tie these concepts of meritocracy and privilege Mm -hmm. back into the racial identity piece Because Mm -hmm. these are not, as you've said, exclusively Asian American concepts. How do you see the intersection of this philosophy or view of life and Mm -hmm. the Asian American identity? Yeah, I think that mentality is very, very direct in 
especially the academic context of Asian communities specifically because of that mindset of, hey, if you get into a good college, you're going to succeed because that's just what happened in Asian countries, right? If you get into a good college, their chances of you succeeding are higher. Through that, a lot of students try to save face. A lot of families try to save face and prove mm-hmm. themselves or brag mm-hmm. about themselves a little bit to the rest of the families. I think in Asian culture, there is a very big like sharing your family's life culture <laughs> where you mm. talk about your kids a lot. And what your kids have been up to and what your kids have been doing. And it's kind of a way to actually show off. Absolutely. I think yeah. it, there's also a lot of complexity to Asian Americans and how we see meritocracy because of the model minority trope and mm. a lot of different things like that that actually lead to a more nuanced interpretation of meritocracy. Yeah. I'm assuming you have Asian American students that yeah, you teach. Yeah. And I'm curious yeah. what your hope is for them as a history teacher. Uh, my hope is that they understand their own history. Mm. I think one thing that I realized growing up is that I did not learn Asian American history in high school. Mm. I didn't learn it through K-12. I only learned it actually in college. And that was a experience that I realized was shocking to me. Like, how come I didn't learn about my own right. people's history until college? Right. right? Like, that's weird. And so my hope is that I have culturally relevant education, pedagogy, which is just a fancy term for your way of teaching but culture relevant ways of teaching and forms of teaching for all my students and so that includes my asian american students right and so for them to actually see an asian american teacher that's gone through the crap that they are going through in many ways i, I hope to be their confidant to mm. sit with them and be like hey meritocracy is not a lens that you should be thinking about i've gone through that road and it was toxic for me i want to remind students of things beyond just the grades of things beyond their perceived reality and come to them as someone that like they know has gone through it yeah has gone through that gone through the oppression gone through the racist treatment gone through the cultural conflicts between my family and asian american customs like Mm. gone through that right and Mm. i can i can empathize with those people and so i think that's my hope for me as i continue to serve asian american students in my community yeah going back to the piece about not learning about your history the history Mm -hmm. of asians or asians in america How do you think students being more in touch or engaged with their own cultural history might Mm. affect them? Yeah, my big fear with American culture, or especially the East Asian American culture, is that we assimilate Mm. into a culture and we forget about our own identity. Mm. There's articles on this, like there's a Boba Liberalism article from Eater magazine that talks about this, like understand that we don't know our own history. And I think it's because of Asian Americans actually unique positionality in society. An American society specifically, where yeah. we're seen as docile, mm. we're seen as non-offensive. And that's actually served us well in many ways, actually. Studies have shown that we're the least likely to be subjects of police violence because we're seen as docile. Mm. And we're seen as these like really techie, nerdy people. And I think it even bleeds into Asian American culture, where my Asian American friends would even assume that their people are good at math. Right. <laughs> or assume like, hey, like, aren't, aren't you Asian? Like, what? Fix my computer. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Like, like, perpetuate the same kind of stereotypes that we've fallen under. Yeah. And because of that, I would say, a similistic culture and our positionality, Asian Americans financially are very well off. Mm. East Asian Americans. And that's hard because then we forget that we're still oppressed people. <laughs> even though we're making a good amount of money as engineers and we're seen as non-obtrusive we are still going to be subjects to racism Mm. and i think that's proven through 
the entire COVID-19 thing that's happened, where a bunch of anti-Asian remarks have been made on the Mm -hmm. Asian American community. It's seen through the bamboo ceiling, is what I would like to call it, in the tech world, where I would say a majority of tech workers are Asian, and yet a majority of upper management in tech companies are not Asian. There are these inequalities that people don't see because they're assimilated to a American dream culture by even like communities of color. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, we are oppressed. I think it's so important to learn about our culture and about how we have been oppressed systemically in American society, about how it was actually a struggle for Asian Americans to actually get to a place where we are now, how we have to actually stand in collective solidarity with a lot of other people groups um, and a lot of communities of color in order to actually even get the things that we have today. Mm-hmm. Like that this is not the meritocratic seeming culture in the Silicon Valley specifically, because I'm from Silicon Valley, is not reality. It's not how Asian Americans were treated and have been treated for the past like, 200, 300 years. That we were considered chinks. And that's because we were railroad workers in the 1800s. And we're considered chinks because of how you can make that noise of chink when you're creating railroads. How we were abused. How a lot of the female Asian community was sent into a sex work. Like all these things mm-hmm. are scars of Asian American history and Asian Americans before us have fought for that, fought in solidarity and protest against this reality. It's honestly like a shame that people don't learn that, that Asian Americans themselves don't even know that history, don't learn the realities of their world. Yeah, when you're talking, it reminded me of how a lot of immigrant parents intentionally try to withhold that history and that trauma Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, from their children as an Uh act of love, as an act of trying to set them up for success and one specific Mm -hmm. example i'm thinking of is when parents don't prioritize teaching their children their native tongue because they're afraid that their children won't be able to learn english as well if they're Mm -hmm. confused Mm -hmm. with another language which i don't i don't think is psychologically correct but anyway i think (laughs) that intentional attempt to erase that history is also really convenient for the people who enable oppressive systems against Asian Americans because what could be better than for the people who have generations of trauma from oppression to Uh completely uh forget that because yeah that's how they Definitely. assimilate I, I also think the factor is that Asian parents have bought into the American dream that's why they're here and I think this is very prevalent in my community and my family as well I'm the American grandson I'm from the American side, so they expect me to succeed because I'm American. That I got into America and they expect the success from me. And I think in many ways that is true. You are going to have a lot more opportunities in America. However, I think because of that, parents just expect you to succeed the moment they land you in America. Um, Especially, I think, Asian parents where they're like, hey, I worked hard. I fought tooth and nail to get here. Now it's your turn. Like, now it's your turn to succeed. Without remembering that Asian Americans specifically deal with a form of trauma themselves uniquely and that we are in many ways trying to preserve our Asian culture while at the same time being fed American values, Mm, right? Right, and I think this complexity is exactly what makes the narrow, one-dimensional view of the success narrative such a Mm -hmm. shame and such a disservice to people going through the education system because... Oh, definitely. At some point, and I think this has been a theme for us on this podcast, like at some point it's going to break. You're going to realize it doesn't hold up. And then if you Mm -hmm. haven't been prepared for that, it can really feel devastating. Yeah, like your world is over, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) It's not easy to point at somebody to blame. You can't really say, oh, it's because the root cause was this, so we just need to stop doing this. It's so messy. I love that your passion is on helping to develop a more holistic 
view of the human and the whole holistic view of the Mm -hmm. self because Mm -hmm. i think that really is the antidote to this sort of fragility definitely i would recommend for all people that have friends that are teachers talk to your teachers and ask them how they see students I think that's really important because I think I, I am very grateful to be in the profession that I am because I learn how to interact with humans on a day-to-day basis. And mm-hmm. I learn how to interact with them with a mindset that they're amazing. And that yeah. is something teachers do because it's natural for us. It's our passion. But at the same time, it teaches us how to talk to people beyond just students. That when I talk to my friends, it innately comes to me that they're valuable, that they're mm-hmm. important people that have so much potential that they're beyond the deliverables that they might have. When I talk to my parents, I see empathy, like what I would see and look for in students. A lot of tips that teachers learn and a lot of teaching strategies that teachers have are very beneficial, extremely beneficial for your interactions interpersonally with just people in general. Mm. This is biased, but I highly recommend talking to, to, to teachers just to really understand how to really humanize people. Certain teachers do a great job at doing that. And so having those teachers really talk to you and guide you through that, I would say is a huge asset. Um, and really important in relationships. Mm. I love that your story is a counter narrative to the typical success mm-hmm. story and mm-hmm. that you're so happy and that you're fulfilled and it sounds like you're living your best life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, or I am. That's too much to yes. say. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am, but of, of course I struggle right, with meritocracy course, myself. Yeah. And mm. I, th- I don't want to come off as someone that's like, just made it, you know? Totally. I, I don't yeah. think that's the human reality. I think that's a constant reminder for myself. And I seek my community for that reminder sometimes as well. Like, hey, how do you see me? Like, do you see me as innately valuable? Or do you see me as the deliverables that I have? And I seek community and I seek myself. And through that gradual process, that's how I'm able to navigate through this world. But it's hard. Like, it's really hard to do that. And I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a complete success story. But I think I've come to a journey where I've realized that, yeah, meritocracy ain't it in my life um, and in people's lives. And we should strive to have self-care and, and self-appreciation, to value ourselves and through that, value other people the same way that we value ourselves. But that starts with us. That starts with seeing ourselves as beautiful, seeing ourselves as amazing, as creative, as intelligent, as amazing individuals that are complex, even if our deliverables don't reflect that. And through that, only then can we also see other people that way as well. Mm. Um, and so that's just my personal thought and that's what I've been navigating through my adult life <laughs> yeah, yeah I feel like I just got a pep talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean it, I yeah. think I, I want to say that right because I feel mm. like you know Rachel you are valuable like you're important people listening are valuable and important I think mm. if when we come to a mindset of that our society will be so much better you know so much more humanizing, so much more full of grace and empathy, so much more caring. And I think when we foster that culture within our communities, it's it's a game changer in, in every way, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe part of the reason why that feels so far away or so mm-hmm. alien is because we have this strong zero-sum mentality where yeah. it's like, in order to value others, I need to deprecate myself. I need to put myself down. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. you're saying is quite the opposite where valuing myself is going to actually increase my ability to value others, Mm -hmm. which I think is correct, Uh, but it's counter to, I think, a lot of Asian and maybe even some people's uh, religious values. Oh, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely very countercultural, and religion has an aspect to this. And I believe that God sees people as valuable, Mm. as beloved, and it is my goal in life to show people a reflection of that, Mm. like of how God sees them. And so I think, for me, that starts with, 
yo, like, I love people, you mm-hmm. know? Like, that is, that is my hope, that they are reminded that they're loved, regardless of circumstance, right? Regardless of deliverables that they have, they're loved, they're important, mm-hmm. and they're valuable in my life. And so I think that is really counterculture, and it's very hard, especially an uphill battle, because we're fighting a system, a systemic ideology and philosophy of meritocracy in, in American society, in, in our world. And to really shift our mindset is as hard as reminding ourselves of our privilege every day. Yeah, It's not going to be easy because it's so relevant in our lives. So it's a continual practice and it's a continual discipline. But I would invite, you know, like everyone to walk along with me as I'm doing this as well. Because it's a, it's a learning process for all of us. And mm. so, and it's a great one. I've loved it so far mm. and it hasn't done me wrong. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories yeah. and experiences here, of Albert. Course. Yeah. Of course. It was a pleasure to speak and thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. If you'd like to say hi, drop us a note, send us an email at misfortunecookiespodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, take care. Bye.